I've done 12 ship air assaults in the middle of the night in Afghanistan. I've done troops in contact where they're where really bad things are happening. And that stuff was like a Sunday morning breakfast compared to that first day on the radio in Missoula. You're shooting at everything. Like I, my first missile that I shot in combat was against a bulldozer that was trying to, to erect defensive positions for ISIS. You've got troops in the open. I have guys engaging a truck with a dish mounted in the back of it, driving down the street, shooting at the Iraqi army. I've got Mad Max uh, V-bids that are, that are driving around through the city. Hey, welcome to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. In this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi speaks with Captain Lucas Gebhardt. He is an aviation officer and Apache helicopter pilot who has deployed multiple times to both Afghanistan and Iraq, including a couple years ago when he was a troop commander deployed to northern Iraq during the battle to retake Mosul from ISIS. The pace and the complexity of that fight were intense, not only on the ground, but also for the pilots flying above them and supporting the fight from the air. As he describes it, if you took all of the engagements his unit was involved in during the year and a half he was deployed in Afghanistan, that's about the same number they experienced in the span of a single week while in Mosul. It is a great conversation that offers a fascinating and really unique perspective on the battle. But before we get to it, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, we would love it if you would take just a moment and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Lucas Gebhardt. Well, Lucas, thank you for coming to talk to us today. I appreciate you coming to sit down. As we get started here into your story about being a, a, a pilot in Mosul in 2016, correct? Yeah, 2016-17. Um, just give me a little bit about who you were then uh, in then some basic context as to how you ended up in Mosul in 2016. Okay, so I was the commander of Bravo Troop, Black Death Troop, and 4-6 Cav. Uh, and all three troops ended up doing service in the city, so this is just Bravo's perspective. and. I went to Fort Lewis, Washington, right out of the captain's career course, and we caught 125 attack aviation as they transitioned from Fort Carson to Fort Lewis and reflagged to 46 Cav. We weren't on the patch chart or anything like that. Looked like we were our main task was going to be to stand this new unit up at at Lewis, and we were one of the first people to be transitioning to the ARS from the attack. So we had shadows coming into the unit, but hadn't really stood up. And about six months in or so, it became pretty clear that we were going to go to Iraq uh, and, and rip out the unit that was in Iraq at the time. And Colonel Lee uh, asked me where it was that I was interested in going of the locations that were available to us since the squadron owned basically the entire country's uh, attack aviation support. And I told him without a doubt that I wanted to go to Erbil. I knew that Missoula was about to kick off it was just a matter of when, and I certainly wanted to be in that fight as the city came to, as we came to take the city back. So over the course of that six months as we're getting ready to go, we're trying to get in contact with 
the unit that's ripping out and we're hearing everything from they haven't left the flight line in six months to as we start to get close to the appointment hey we're in the fight every day like you guys need to pack some of this stuff and have some of the stuff on your on your go bags right out of the gate and so in the last month or so before getting to Iraq I think that they had just crossed the Kurdish defensive line is moving to the west out of Erbil and if you don't know anything about that this berm is it's got to be thousands of miles long and it's the biggest structure that I've ever seen in my life there is a trench they've cut every single major road heading east out of Missoula towards Erbil and there's this giant berm that was still there when we got there and they're pushing west towards the city and right before we got there the Apaches had gotten into the fight and they had started the initial sort of eastern edge of the city one of the major things that we talked about as we were getting ready to go is that we were used to Afghanistan operations where I'm flying a thousand feet two thousand feet the primary weapon system threat is an AK-47 or a PKM or something like that and we're talking about how it is that we're going to protect from threat because we're hearing everything from service air missile fire threat to straight up air defense artillery being in the city to you know ZPU 1 14.7 millimeter heavy machine guns being down there and so we're talking about the altitudes that we're going to fly to really get around that and what the city was going to be like but the last thing my boss said to me before I got on the plane was hey Lucas I want you to come off that plane swinging get us into the fight make sure that the unit that's there knows that we're ready to go and take care of the mission and so we landed in our bill and I took some of the best mechanics in my troop and my maintenance test pilot with me and so we got off the plane and I think two days later maybe three days on the outside we were up doing our local area orientation uh, getting into the fight in the city so that first flight for me was with my troop standardization pilot uh, Justin Collins and we are getting ready to take off out of Erbil International Airport which is an actual international airport not like the ones that we see in Afghanistan and it is crazy because the guy that's on the radio speaks English but he really is talking to everybody that's flying into the airport in Arabic and we don't understand a lot of stuff that's happening on the radios and we're tr we have to cross runway center line to get out of the airport so we get out and we get a hold of the JTACs that work over and uh, across the runway from us that are really handling the operations in the city. They tell us the point where it is that we're going to loiter and off we go out to the city. And I remember really specifically that that radio call with those guys on the way out was just, it was a nightmare. I'm trying to talk to an international airport guy and the radio contact isn't great, like the signal just isn't very good. But we got through it and we got out to the city and that first hour and a half on station, I just, I felt like I was, our phrase is hanging on the stabilator of the aircraft, which is behind me. It felt like I was just behind everything that was happening for an hour and a half. I've done 12 ship air assaults in the middle of the night in Afghanistan. I've done troops in contact where they're, where really bad things are happening. And that stuff was like a Sunday morning breakfast compared to that first day on the radio in Missoula because the guy in front of me that's been there for a month knows where the JTAC is. He knows where the front line trace is. And I, I don't mean I didn't know. I knew where it was. But 
orientating yourself to the actual spot where that stuff is and figuring out what it looks like down there in addition to having every single radio in my aircraft going absolutely bonkers the entire time and still not knowing what it is that I can filter out was a fire hose. So let's let's take a step back. I think that's a really good primer into some stuff we're gonna talk here in a sec about the complexity of, of what you're doing in Mosul. So you get there, you're in Erbil, and you understand that there's gonna be this big fight in, in Mosul shortly. Um, and it, it may have been ongoing when you guys were on the ground. What did you sort of understand your aviation detachment's role as being in, in Mosul? Kind of what was the larger picture of, of what you guys were getting asked to do? Yeah, so the fight had just kicked off, uh, and we were looking at supporting the Iraqi army's maneuver in the city and allowing them to take the city back. It's important to note that there were Americans down on the ground, but this was not our fight. The JTACs were supposed to be out of actual contact with the enemy. Um, I'm sure that if you talk to them, the, the perspective is quite different from what mine is because they were probably closer, um, but really assisting the Iraqi army and allowing them to take the city back because they didn't have attack support like we're capable of providing. So in, in the intro here, we talked about a bunch of really interesting things and I wanna make sure we hit on all of them from the sort of complexity of the enemy that you're potentially facing, the ability for the enemy to actually influence you guys as aviators in a way that maybe hasn't been true for quite a while um, in the conflicts that we've participated in, the complexity of both the sort of ground combat environment, whether it's the fact that it's an urban area or the fact that we aren't the frontline trace for most of these, these contacts, to the quantity of things flying around in the air. So kind of walk me through how after that first mission and getting back, you, you kind of conceptualized how you were gonna handle all of that complexity after the fire hose of that first one. Yeah, so uh, I'll start with the capability of the enemy because that was the starting point for us and everything that we decided that we wanted to do. Uh, but. Like I said, we are used to AK-47s, RPGs. You're talking three, 400 meter range, which is what is building the altitudes that we typically fly in Afghanistan. And we're going into these threat briefings for Missoula and the enemy has 57 millimeter anti-aircraft guns and 34 millimeter anti-aircraft guns. And they're on the battlefield. And you might be thinking to yourself like, where do you hide an anti-aircraft piece with a telephone pole attached to the back of it. And the, I don't know where you hide that thing, but they had them. Uh, I got shot at by a ZPU mounted on the back of a semi truck six months into this fight, like March of 2017, I'm getting shot at from the center of Missoula from one of these things. So I don't know where they're keeping them, but we know that they're there and we know that they have sophisticated surface to air threat that is on the ground. Uh, and so that really informed how far it was that we were going to stay away from the frontline trace and also the altitudes that we were going to fly at. But I noticed when we went out there that we were given a point with a radius to loiter around and it seemed like every single day they're giving us a new point but it really is kind of the same point like there's a highway that comes out of Missoula and runs in I'm sorry that comes out of Erbil and runs into Missoula and then there's a giant ring around the city and 
they keep telling me to loiter either north or north or south of this road and so uh and i know that there's artillery it's been so long now that i can't remember all the cops names but there's american artillery and iraqi artillery that's set up on the eastern flank of the city that's shooting into the city high altitude low altitude etc but artillery doesn't go anywhere so why is it that in the middle of my flight during the day that they're calling me to deconflict me from artillery fires when like it seems like we should have a smarter way of doing this mm-hmm. and not only that but the radio was awful in our bill and so i went over to talk to the jtacs that afternoon to talk about how it was that we could more efficiently hey we're going to do this all day every day until this is over let's be a little let's let's see what we can do to make this easier for us yeah no i mean i think it's a fascinating problem set that you're having to deal with because of all the complexity and the one that gets me is as an infantryman we talked about this before we started recording is trying to as the as the jtac or the sort of american ground force commander talk you guys as a as pilots onto targets in a not just urban area but a dense urban area um, and how that happens and, and how you're communicating with them and how they're keeping situational awareness uh, that'll allow you to engage the targets that you're being asked to engage. So another big transition from the Afghan fight that I was used to is that before I ever shot anything in Afghanistan, rule number one was always where is every single American because I am not going to pull the trigger if if I don't know where everybody is because the risk of fratricide is something I'm not willing to live with and I'm sure nobody else is but it was rule number one is always know exactly where friendlies are located and as you think about the city of Missoula like if you haven't seen it it is a major metropolitan area it is a very densely packed city like you were saying the east side maybe not so much as the west side but there are tall buildings and the JTAC like I said is a few clicks or probably a few hundred meters or something but in any cases for the most part in an up armored vehicle and is tracking the Iraqi movement with uh, to my knowledge an iPad with basically GPS sensors on some of the guys that are out there on the ground and so they know where the flot is uh, and they know exactly what block it is that their guys are on but as you might imagine in a huge city I have a GRG a grid reference graphic that is blocks and they did if you google earth zoom into the city like you can see the roads and you could guess where somebody might draw a line if they wanted to make sure that they were looking at the right area that's exactly what we did or that's what they did in the city but i certainly didn't have every single building number down because i don't have that much space in my cockpit you might not in the library of congress or something like that (laughs) so they were talking to us about hey, they're at this street corner, see if you can see them down there at the street corner. And one of the major advantages of being as high as we were, despite the fact that my sensor wasn't fantastic, was that I could see down the canyons in the city and I could see intersections. And we learned how to get ourselves oriented to look down north-south running roads and east-west running roads, which sounds easy, but isn't when you have a frontline trace that you're dealing with. And so we're talking to them about very specific stuff and they're getting the phone, the radio calls back from their guys that are at the front saying, yeah, it's that building with the blue shutter. And by the way, I don't see color in an Apache, but it kind of looks lighter than black, so that's blue. And uh, your two windows to the right of that is where the threat is located. And so that's what we were dealing with. 
a lot of the time they would say, hey, the friendlies are here, find them. And now they're telling us that they're being shot at from 200, 300 meters to their north. And you would just follow the road up or look around the intersections and you would find in the beginning when they were a little less disciplined, uh, you could see the enemy coming in and out of buildings with weapon systems and, um, and things like that. And so you could pretty quickly identify their positions. So as you're supporting the fight and, and it progresses, you know, further and further into Mosul, I mean, how does that, how does that challenge change? What, what was kind of the, the learning curve for you guys and what, what new things did you have, have to learn as the fight progressed? I think that the biggest challenge for us is we got, there's a few. As we're transitioning to East Missoula is the conversation about where, we didn't have a no pen line on the map, but we had a no pen line on the map. Like I had a, autonomy as the air mission commander, but if I didn't want to explain to my boss why I went across this line, I certainly wasn't going to go across that line. And so we're having the conversation about shifting the, it's not a no pen line, it's a threat line. It's about shifting that threat line in and choosing where it is that we're willing to put the aircraft. And if you push it too far, you put yourself in the range of a 57 millimeter artillery system. And if you don't push it far enough, then I'm looking at nine clicks through a FLIR system that is made to see six clicks or if you're really good with it, six clicks. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, that was the, the challenge that we had. And not only that, but then as you get into east, farther towards the river, and really in West Missoula, like the density of the city starts to increase. It's like anywhere else, as you get closer to city center, the buildings get bigger. And so we're dealing with that threat as well. And then also as you're transitioning to East Missoula, you have the Iraqi army uh, operating primarily on the Southwest axis you have the Fed pole, I think, was next to them. The federal police were next to them. And then up the gut, up the center, was the CTS guys that I would love to talk more about them at some point. But the CTS guys are up the center. And I can't remember who it was that was up on the northern flank there. But these guys are all of varying capabilities, and they're all moving at varying rates. And so when I'm talking about moving that pen line, like I'm talking the, the flot is not straight. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's zigzagging and it's by GRG and so you know you're worried about whether or not they're back clearing and you go out one afternoon and you watch an Iraqi army helicopter get shot out of the sky and burn in where you're not flying in the same place and he doesn't have the threat capability that you do but that stuff is present in my boss's mind we're talking about where it is that we're gonna fly uh, to support the fight yeah, I, I think the other thing that's interesting, and, and I'd be curious what your thoughts are about it. Um, you mentioned before we started recording, you guys are shooting a lot. Um, you know, again, I, as a guy that has only ever been to Afghanistan, I envision what our pilots would do for, for my infantry platoon or company, which in a lot of cases, like there was certainly shooting, but it wasn't deliberate, constant support firing over and over again. So can you kind of talk to how you guys were getting used and, and what your, you know, the volume of, of firing that you guys were doing. Yeah, so to put things in perspective on my Afghanistan and my two previous Afghanistan rotations prior to this point, I think, and I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that if you were to uh, 
condense all the engagements for the entire battalion down, you're talking like less than a week mm -hmm. in Missoula. And this is a year and a half that I'm deployed, or yeah, about a year and a half that I'm deployed in other places, and all of that stuff is encompassed in less than a week in Missoula. Um, so there were days, uh, so Justin and I, I uh, shot seven missiles in one day, which I only carried eight. So it was four the first flight and four the second. I would have shot all eight if the last one hadn't uh, malfunctioned. Um, it was constant. It was every day. Some days you would go out and it would be quiet, but it just didn't last very long, uh, that sort of engagement. And the other thing is the, you're shooting at everything. Like I, my first missile that I shot in combat was against a bulldozer that was trying to, to erect defensive positions for ISIS. You've got troops in the open. I have guys engaging a truck with a dish mounted in the back of it, driving down the street, shooting at the Iraqi army. I've got Mad Max uh, V-bids that are, that are driving around through the city that we hadn't, at this point, gotten to being able to successfully engage yet. But the sort of everything under the sun is out there, and all of it is actively fighting against you. And then when we're in Afghanistan, we're cutting hours of tape. I didn't cut a tape because I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Like if my bosses wanted the justification reel and videotape for every single engagement that we did, like I would probably still be there mm -hmm. doing those things. When we were in West Missoula, uh, we ran out of missiles on our bill. Uh, I remember taking off that morning I called in the ground force commander and said, hey, the flight today, we check in with our standard check-in. And I said, hey, we've got four missiles between the two birds. Does it send any alarm bells off? We use them. And I get a phone call, uh, the next radio call in, I think is Liberty 6, which is General Townsend, who, much to my fortune or misfortune, depending on your perspective, is standing in the battalion talk of the guy who I just told that I'm Winchester mm -hmm. because I don't have any more missiles on Mosul or on our bill. And he wants to know why, and he's the commander for all of Iraq and Afghanistan at that point. And so that afternoon, magically, like 100 missiles showed up on, mm -hmm. on our bill, so it was a good day. Yeah, so I think, I think along with the volume, the thing that's sort of fascinating to me is, in, and in talking to you beforehand, it's, it's almost extra interesting to me in that the, the assault on Mosul is in very much is is very much a deliberate operation right it was a large scale deliberately planned operation um, this isn't basic patrolling this is we are going to clear this way and then clear that way and seize this thing in order to seize that thing um, but it sounds as though even though you're shooting at a lot of stuff you're still very much sort of on call there's not a lot of you mentioned before that you didn't really get graphics um, you're just in loiter and prepared to engage. So did you expect to be a little bit more deliberately planned or was that sort of par for the course to be out and responding to things as they popped up? Yeah, so I think in the beginning, um, we were trying to work through the tactics of, of this fight and the JTACs too that are controlling us also have the same framework that you do of Afghanistan of Apaches and left traffic and really 
that was the default mindset that came in. And it really, I think, honestly, it's kind of the, what we continued even as we got into the city. We built capability at the squadron level to be able to launch extra flights on days when, um, on days when it was hot in the city or when I knew that there were uh, advances going on on multiple axes. But mm -hmm. uh, so as an anecdote, you just don't always know what the Iraqi army is going to do mm -hmm. in the next morning. And so you don't get into the deliberate plan as much. So we just built flexibility. One morning, uh, I remember waking up and I'm in Mosul fighting and I read that the CTS the night prior had launched a nighttime raid into somewhere in the city and when dawn broke ISIS punched back and nobody called us on the radio because we were being treated like XCAS we were being treated like an F-16 that's in loiter or a Reaper or a Pred that's in loiter and nobody calls me on the radio despite the fact hey I'm on duty. I'm on QRF. I would be happy to come to the city. I'll be there in, you know, 30 minutes. Nobody calls me on the radio. And I'm reading this in like the Wall Street Journal or something. And so the next morning, I find out through the grapevine that the CTS is launching another nighttime assault. And again, nobody has asked me for support in the morning, but I was a troop commander and my squadron commander told me to have a biased reaction. And so that morning when I ran my aircraft up, I called my squadron headquarters and I said, I'm going to the city we'll call you when we get there. And there were people that weren't like super thrilled about that decision, but I felt like I had the authority to do it. And sure enough, the sun comes up and I watch the entire enemy ambush squad leave from a house where I thought that they might live because I looked at it the day prior in the city. And I watched the entire thing come out and we were able to interdict the attack the next morning. And that stuff starts to happen more. There's a transition point between us being handed a remote missile engagement with a predator lazing to us as the the terrain gets a little bit more open being able to get forward we know where they're going to go because most of us are prior infantrymen or we've covered enough raids that like you know what what the ground force scheme maneuver is going to be based on what you're looking at on the ground and so we're getting out in front of them and finding the stuff uh, so as the the battle kind of is winding down i'm assuming you're still there for as Mosul kind of starts to wind down a bit, is that correct? Or did you rotate out earlier than no, that? No, so uh, Mosul did not, We so we did East Mosul, mm -hmm. uh, and that ended in like January of 17. And then we jumped to Key West, and most of the squadron stayed on our bill, but we jumped basically a medevac and med escort to Key West to cover West Mosul. And uh, since I was heading off to grad school, I sort of did a change over with one of the other troop commanders. So I covered probably a half to three quarters of West Missoula. Uh It was sort of in like the final, or felt like the final winding down stages, but then it took like four months. I don't know that if we were there when the city finally got like cleared on the news, cleared, but they were down to like sort of the final ISIS headquarters spots by the time we took off out of there yeah. or by, by the time I did anyway yeah so what were for you personally some of the some of the takeaways from your experience in Mosul like how did it change the way that you understand your job as as an aviator um I mean I think that a lot of it really was was proficiency based and and the major change in tactics for us and just the recognizing that 
I think that the, the best thing for me is that our entire decision-making process from the get-go was threat-based and determining what the enemy was capable of doing and therefore would want to do. Like, what is the worst thing that the enemy can do to me today? Mm -hmm. And that is probably what they're going to want to do and choosing our tactics based on that. But as much as Mosul was different from Afghanistan, it also like like I think that we've come to the conclusion that today was also very similar, um, and so I definitely learned a lot more about the airspace deconfliction and intelligent ways to do it uh, instead of telling somebody to loiter at a point. It might make sense to establish high-low rises and things like that, but over-the-shoulder support of a maneuver element is the bread and butter for an Apache troop. Although I think the doctrine tells you that it's deep attack and things like that. But for the last 15 years, our bread and butter has been support the maneuver element and make sure that they get home safe. Well, I think that's all I have for you. I appreciate you talking to us. I think it's a, a super interesting problem to discuss the aviation viewpoint of, of a big battle like, like Mosul. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me in. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. One last thing before you go. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.